Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 2. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. Gracious God, our minds are flooded with many messages from our everyday lives. Open our hearts this morning to hear the words of Paul for us through his letters. Help us focus on the message so it may nourish us and bring us closer to you through Jesus Christ. Amen. From 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others, but we ourselves are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to our consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For if the love of Christ urges us on, because we are convinced that one day that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I have listened to you, and on a day of salvation, I have helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God indeed. Before I 
share the thoughts that I have for you from today's reading, I did want to take a moment and introduce two very special people who are with us today. They're visiting all the way from near the Franklin, Tennessee area, and I'm becoming fast friends with these folks, and that is uh, George and Pam Pendergrass. And if they would stand, George and Pam are the new associate directors with, with Frontier Fellowship. And our church has had a long relationship with Frontier Fellowship, primarily through Dan McNerney. And boy, God is using these folks and calling them to do some new opportunities for ministry in the country of Egypt. And uh, I'm hoping a time will come when we'll have an opportunity to hear from them and to hear more of their story. But they're here with us today, and let's just welcome them to our, to our church. After worship, you'll have an opportunity, hopefully, just to greet them and to welcome them. I also want to let you know as we jump into this morning's scripture that we are sort of shifting gears now. And uh, what I want to say to you this morning, I think, underscores literally who we are as a people and as a church. And I really want you to hear that. What we're going to talk about this morning underscores who we are as a people and as a church. And that covers everything. It covers everything. So later on in the service, you'll hear about the start of our stewardship campaign. But that's not the most important thing. What I want to say to you this morning colors everything, everything about the Christian life. Let me, let me tell you why I say that. So a few years ago, I heard about a book called Start With Why. And just the very title intrigued me. It was written by a, by a, a, a man by the name of Simon Sinek. And in the book, Simon talks very candidly about a time in his life when he had fallen out of love with his work and with everything that he was doing. He said, I was in a very dark place. And I think as human beings, we can all identify with this man. We've all gotten to those points in life when we say to ourselves, why am I doing this? What is this all about? And this is what he said. He said, look, there was nothing wrong with the quality of my work. There was nothing wrong with the people that I worked with. He said, I just, I just, the bottom fell out. I just lost the passion for what I was doing. And he said, the sad thing is, God has been so good to me. He lists all the blessings. He said, I should be the happiest person in the world. I was making a good living. I was working with great people. I was making more money than I knew what to do with it. But he said, at the end of the day, I was no longer fulfilled. I was no longer fulfilled by work. And he said, I needed to do something to rekindle my passion. And that's where the title of the book comes from. He said, I needed to rediscover my why. What is my purpose? And I mean, you've got to read the whole book. But he said, when he found his why, when he found his reason for getting up every morning and doing what he believed he was called to do, it changed his life and it changed his world. Now, I will tell you that the book is primarily geared toward those individuals who believe they're doing something and they need encouragement, they need a sense of focus, and I think that's what you get from reading his book. He calls it why. 
I call it motivation. And by definition, motivation means the reason or reasons one has for acting or behaving in a particular way. And you know the, the amazing thing about our group, and for those of you watching online, is that we all have motivation. Some of us are motivated wrongly, and some of us are motivated rightly. For example, I think of a man who was one of the world's greatest leaders, one of the world's most motivated leaders, was Adolf Hitler. His why, his motivation, his reason for being was to restore Germany to greatness by purging the fatherland of undesirable people like Jews and black people and gypsies and people who were physically handicapped and people who had a different sexual expression. He said, we've got to kill these people. But some of us are rightly motivated. And I think about the love and the perseverance of William Wilberforce, who for 45 years, and I can't fathom that, I mean, that's, that's, that's more than half of your life. For 45 years, William Wilberforce struggled single-handedly against the moral blindness of 19th century English politicians and English society. He wanted England to forsake the horrors of the slave trade. But he also wanted them to see Africans not as chattel, but as human beings, loved and created by God. And so motivated, yes, he had a motivation, motivated by love, he worked for 45 years to overcome setbacks and apathy and greed. And then... In 1833, the Abolition Slavery Bill was passed in both houses of England's parliament, and someone described Wilberforce as possessing the virtue of a fanatic. But you see, what they missed in that was Wilberforce was a follower of Jesus, and he was motivated by love. Now, we've been talking a lot about the encouragement that Paul is giving to this very, very troubled church. And I call this series Encouragement for a Grace-Filled Church. And I've been trying to get us to get a glimpse into Paul's heart. Paul is the pastor, the founding pastor of this church. And when you read this particular letter, you see the passion that he has. And what he says here today shapes what he says in chapters 9 and 10 and 11. We are going to be, during this season of stewardship, we're going to be reading out of chapters 9, 10, and 11. And the thing that we want to hear as we read chapters 9, 10, and 11, that even in the area of giving, if it's not motivated by love, then it simply will not work. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 presents a very stunning, unbelievable litany of difficulties that this man went through as the pastor and the planter of this church. And in this section, you get a glimpse of what Paul is all about. What is it that motivated him? So I want to ask you to do a favor for me. And this is very un-Presbyterian, but I'm going to ask you to look in the pews and pick up one of those red pew Bibles 
And if you would turn with me to page 177, would you do that? If you would pick up one of those Bibles, or if you open the Bible that you brought, that is still just, it's the same Bible, it's just as good. Page 177, and I want you to look at 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 28. And as you read that, I want you to keep asking yourself, okay, why? 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 Verses 23 through 28, he talks about his imprisonments and the countless floggings that almost killed him. And then look at verse 24. He says, five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked for a night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, I was in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless nights, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked, and besides other things. Now, this is the part that gets me every time. Paul gets me. Paul gets what happens when people are called to love the church. Verse 28, and he said, besides other things, I am under daily pressure because of my anxiety for all the churches. And then he begins to address his critics again. Who is weak? And I'm not weak. Who is made to stumble? And I'm not indignant. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, blessed be he forever, knows that I do not lie. In Damascus, the governor under King Aretas guarded the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped from their hands. Friends, I'm telling you, if most of us, and I'm including myself, if most of us endured this kind of suffering, this kind of violence, this kind of hate, a couple things might happen. We would either just say, you know what, I'm done. Fold it up, walk away. Some of us of the more fiery kind, we would fight fire with fire. Some of us would just succumb inwardly to hate and to bitterness and to revenge. And some of us would say, I'm going to find a different job. This is too dangerous. But this leader didn't. He didn't allow evil to overcome him. He overcame evil with good. And you've got to ask the question, why? What motivated this man to endure such pain and suffering? Why didn't he write a letter of resignation? And really, this is a question I want to answer before I take my seat. Paul, I would suggest to you, had one compelling motivation that influenced his total life. It influenced his, what I call his upward life and his outward life. And that motivation was love. We shouldn't be surprised, right? 
every wedding that I do, and I've done hundreds of weddings over my time, we go to some of the most beautiful words about love that have ever been written. And if you still have your Bibles open, I'm going to let you do a little bit more work for me. If you would go to page 166, can you do that? Chapter 13. I know some of you memorize this chapter and you know it front and back. But 1 Corinthians 13, page 166, if you're in the Red Pew Bible. And what Paul does, he breaks up what he calls insincere love from authentic love. Let's read about the insincere love, first of all. He says, if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, think about that, I have all faith, and I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing if I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. And then he talks about what sincere love looks like, authentic love. In verse 4, he says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. That is love now. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And then he says this, love never ends. But then he goes on and he says, as a corrective to the church, the very church, 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, he says, but you guys making a big deal about prophecies, they're going to end. You guys are making a big deal about tongues, they're going to end. You're making a big deal about word of knowledge, that's going to end. Because we only know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the complete comes, and it could be the new age, it could be the return of the Messiah. When the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. And then he says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then we will see face to face. Now I only know in part. Then I will know fully as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. And then he says it again, the greatest of these is love. But we need to know that Paul isn't the first one to say that. In Matthew 22, we read about these religious leaders who came to Jesus. The Pharisees first, the Sadducees, Pharisees first came to him and tried to to embroil him in a controversy, and Jesus was able to answer all of their difficult questions. And then, the, then the, the, the Sadducees came, and they gathered around him, and they asked him a question. They said, Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Now, Paul just said it's the greatest, but Paul heard that from Jesus. And Jesus told them, You shall love the Lord your God. 
Notice the, the, the comprehensive nature of what it means to love God. You love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And even here, when you read this, you see the way life then works. Love for God, love for neighbor. Let's look at them very, very distinctly here, just for a few seconds. That, that outward motivation, love for others, if you look at verse 11 then, so go back now to 2 Corinthians, our reading for this morning, and look at verse 11, and we find words that have inspired generations of evangelists and preachers and pastors and missionaries and Christians in general. Verse 11 really encompasses why the church does mission. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others. Now, why would Paul, after all that he's gone through, said this? And what it says to me this morning is that Paul was not embittered. He was not close-minded. He was not a vengeful person. Despite all that he's gone through, he says, I want to persuade people. Knowing that there is a God, I want to persuade people. He loved people. He loved his enemies. He loved his friends. He loved the stranger. Why was he so concerned about persuading people? You look back up at verse 10 and you'll see why. Verse 10 of, 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 1 Corinthians, of 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For all of us, unless you're asleep, this verse should just shake you to your core. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive the recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. We all have an appointment, friends, with God one day, and Paul says that's the reason why I'm reaching out, reaching out, reaching out to people. I love people. I want to see people come to know this God who loves them and cares for them. But listen, friends, in order to persuade people that God loves them, we must love the very people we're reaching out to. In Romans, Paul tells us that love must be genuine, that we must hate what is evil. He tells us in Romans chapter 12 that if your enemies are hungry, feed them. And if they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And by doing so, you will keep burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what Paul was doing. Friends, we in First Pres, we, the leaders, the pastors, the members of this congregation, we as a, as a body of believers, we must learn this. That the greatest thing we could ever do is to learn to love people. And I'll tell you how that's possible. So Paul then had this very outward focus. He was driven by love to reach people, but he also had an upward, upward motivation. And that was love for God. There's another reason that motivated his life. And if you look at verses 14 and 15, he says, For the love of Christ, there it is, the love of Christ urges us on. Some translations say the love of Christ constrains us. You know, you want to you wanna, you, you wanna hit back at that person, but the love of Christ just says, you know what, calm yourself down. 
You want to walk away from a difficult person. And the, and the love of Christ just constrains you. It urges you on, saying, no, you don't give up on people. That's what motivated him ultimately. It was his love for God. And then he says in verse 15, because we're convinced that one has died for all. That's love. Jesus died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. All of us here this morning have heard about Copernicus. Copernicus, the astronomer. He was among the first to understand that the earth was not at the center of the universe. And of course, the church excommunicated him. The church thought that he was teaching and pro promoting some kind of teaching that was dangerous. But Copernicus was right. The earth is not the center of the universe. And today, when we hear about a Copernican revolution, we talk about something that is radical, that is so different, that is mind-bending, that is outside the box. The Apostle Paul had his Copernican revolution on the Damascus Road. And Jesus changed his life. He was going in one direction. Jesus changed his life in another direction. And here's the thing to remember. Paul was a very religious man. Everything about him, though, it was just focused on himself. He was religious, but it was still all about him. He was living an egocentric life. He was the center of his own universe. And then when he met the love of Christ, he said, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lived in me. And suddenly, Paul's universe went from egocentricity to Christocentricity. And that's why he says in verse 17, so if anyone is in Christ, guess what? They're a new creation. Only God can do that. And so when we talk about upward love for God, it's not something we achieve. It's the fact that Christ died for us. Look all the way down at verses uh, 20 and 21. He says, so we are ambassadors for Christ. God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God for our sake. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. It is then, when we shift from our ego to Christ, it is then that we're able to love the God who has always loved us. So Paul is motivated to serve, to plant, to suffer because of love, because of love. And I'm not exaggerating. Let me say it again. Jesus says that the two greatest things we as a church can do with our lives is to love God and to love people. And the truest evidence that we love God, the truest evidence that we love God is how we treat other people. So we're doing a class upstairs, and we've been doing it for the last few weeks. And one of the videos that we've been looking at and one of the books that we've been talking about is the, the, the complicity and the compromise of the American church in the area of slavery. 
And these people in the 17th century, the 18th century, these people in the 21st century, they would say, I love God. I just don't like Africans. I just don't like Asians. I just don't like, and you could go down the list. That is not real love. The evidence that we are truly motivated by love is how we treat each other. But here's a warning, my friends. If you decide you want to live a life motivated by love, you are going to hurt. When you decide to live by love, you are going to, your heart's going to be broken. You're going to put yourself out there and you're going to be hurt. And so when you look at the divisiveness that's in our culture today, the hostility that exists among our political leaders, the hatred, the, this, this, this rise of hatred in American society toward immigrants again, people from the Middle East, people from Asia, if you really are motivated by love, it's going to break your heart. Why? Because you know that the love of God for people the love of God for people means that we cannot stay on the sideline. We cannot be complicit with the evil that we see in our society toward other human beings. When you see the violence in our streets, when you see the racial animosity among human beings toward each other, if you are motivated by love, I'm telling you, it's going to break your heart. And you will want to do something. The very nature of love is action you will want to do something. So I have a vision for our church, and it's an ongoing vision that our church will be wrapped in this unbreakable cord of love and unity. I have a vision for our congregation that we would never, ever struggle to find leaders who's just phone it in. We will never have those kind of leaders but we will have leaders leading first prayers who are willing to put Christ at the center, leaders who are willing to abandon fear and self-centeredness and powerfully serve God and our community. My vision for our church is that we would be a beacon of light, light to the, to, to the community, shining into the darkness that our church will never be complicit with evil. Our church will never be complicit with hate. This congregation will never be a church that is apathetic because we are so convinced of God's love for the world, God's love for us, and that is what motivates us. And so, friends, I want to encourage you this morning to let love for God and love for each other be our testimony, not our building, not our money, but our testimony of love. And they will know us, Jesus says, by our love. And imagine what happens, imagine what happens when we give in love and we serve in love and we walk in love and we talk in love. I'm telling you, Evanston will stand up and take notice what is going on with First Press. They're different. They're different. And that's what happens when a church and a people are captured by the love of God. In the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and God's people say, Amen.